I'd like to open up to Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll read the first nine verses to begin. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there any respect of persons with him. Reminding you back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, which in a way introduced the section that follows, Paul exhorts all believers to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. And I would encourage you that God's word exhorts us to always have a humble spirit, to seek to serve others, to seek to have in your life and in your relationships with others the same kind of mind and attitude that Christ had as he walked on earth, as he submitted himself, as he was humble, as he was filled with kindness and he served even his disciples and demonstrated that by kneeling down and washing their feet. And so we are encouraged by this to submit ourselves to one another and to humble ourselves and to have a humble spirit and a humble attitude. It then goes on to describe a practical instruction for us in a variety of different human relationships. Husbands and wives, which we've already seen. And then today we come to parents and children and servants and masters. And the gospel has power and instruction to reform, to rejuvenate, to revitalize, to transform our human relationships with one another. It does not guarantee you, if you follow God's word in these relationships, that you'll never have trouble in those relationships, that you'll never have difficulties or deal with difficult people or, or, uh, or, or have other kinds of problems. But what it does tell us is that you can, in your human relationships, whether it's in your employment, whether it's in your family, whether it's with your friendships, that you can, in those things, serve God by how you serve others, that you can demonstrate and you can exemplify the truths of the gospel in how you live out those relationships. And that God will bless you in your service to him through your relationships with others, that you can, in fact, be serving God in how you go about your human relationships. And then it goes on to give us practical instruction that applies to, to different ones. Each of these relationships has a, an authority dynamic, 
And it teaches us a lot about God's authority, and, and it reflects things about God's authority. And so uh, one, one example that I uh, have used before, but I think is very instructive and powerful, comes from Matthew chapter 8. And it tells the story about a centurion, a Roman centurion, who sent messengers to Jesus because this centurion had a servant. And it says in Luke's account of these events, it says that this servant was very dear to him. He had a very dear servant to him who was sick even unto death. His servant was sick and he was going to die. This centurion was a friend of the Jewish people. He had, in fact, built them a synagogue, and he was a great supporter of their nation. And and so we gather from that that he was uh, a believer in the God that the Jews proclaimed and worshipped. And so when he comes into this trouble and he hears about Jesus, he sends to the elders of the Jews in that area saying, can you have Jesus heal my servant for me. And this, this tells the story of this Roman centurion. A, a centurion was someone who had charge over a hundred Roman soldiers. So this was a man with a certain level of uh, power and influence in the Roman legions. He was a person in authority and he was also a person under authority because there were generals and ultimately Caesar who were over him. And he was head servants that he commanded and and soldiers that he commanded. Uh, This is Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. We see Jesus is very uh, forward, and and he even indicates his desire to come and to heal this man's servant. But then notice the centurion's response. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. So we see, first of all, a few things about this centurion. One, he believed that he was not worthy for Jesus to even come under his roof. Of course, he's right about that. None of us are worthy for Jesus to come under our roof. But Jesus has come under many roofs because Jesus uh, is, is compassionate and kind and willing to give us beyond what we're worthy of, beyond what we deserve. So we see, though, that in this centurion, a person who in the eyes of the world was rather powerful compared to Uh, Jesus, for example, who didn't have an army of soldiers that he commanded at his disposal. This was a centurion of the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen. And he does not consider himself worthy for Jesus to come under his roof. So he has a humble attitude and he has a great esteem and respect for Jesus. He also, though, has an understanding of the power of and authority that Jesus has because he also recognizes that Jesus doesn't need to come into his house to heal his servant. All Jesus has to do is say the word. That is the extent of the power that Jesus has. This man had a better understanding of Jesus's power and authority than many of Jesus's own people had. And so Jesus will will marvel at this man's faith. 
Uh, but, but he goes on explaining. This is what the centurion says. He says, for I am a man under authority. First, he recognized that he was under authority, that he had those that he had to report to. That when they say, do this, he had to do it. When his general commanded him to go and move his army over here, he did what he was told. But he also had those under his authority. He says, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And we also remember back that that what initiated this was this man's servant who so obediently obeyed his commands. This servant who was dear to him was now sick and tormented. And he wanted, he didn't just want his servant back so he could serve him again. Surely he could attain another servant given his position. But he cared about the well-being of this servant and wanted to see his healing. But he, he recognizes his power and his authority, and he says, um, and it says, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And it goes on to describe in verse 13, how Jesus said to the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto you. And the servant was healed in the selfsame hour. See, this man understood something about authority. He understood that he was under authority and that he had those under his authority and that Jesus had the power to command what he wished, what he desired to be and it would be. That Jesus could command the very disease itself and tell it to go to to be gone from this servant. That Jesus could command his angels and he could send them to heal. That Jesus had the power and authority at his disposal. Now, I would assert to you that we are all, at various parts in our lives, either under authority or in authority or both in a variety of relationships in our life. And so we can relate to this and we can understand what this centurion was saying. And if we understand that Jesus has all power and all authority, then we likewise will have faith like this centurion head in, in the authority of Jesus. Now, in this passage here, it speaks about children and parents, and it goes on to say, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. As he begins this exhortation, he begins it with children. He he exhorts children to be obedient to their parents in the Lord. And we see from this that children from very young age, no matter how small, can begin to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and live their lives in service to God, pleasing to him, no matter how small they are. And one of the ways that they do that is by obedience to their parents. Obedience to their parents. Notice he says, be obedient to their parents, but not just be obedient to your parents, but be obey your parents in the Lord. That their service to their parents is, through that, ultimately, service to Christ. Because that parent-child relationship, the relationship of a, of a parent to a child, is representative to us of God's relationship to us. 
Remember that God has uh, revealed himself. One of the main ways that God has revealed to himself as our father, which is in heaven. Now, all earthly uh, father child relationships do not perfectly represent our father, which is in heaven, because we are sinful. We are we are evil. We are fallen and we don't we don't live up to that. But in their dim way. They reflect the glorious relationship of our Heavenly Father to us. And so when you as a child obey your parents, you are uh, demonstrating and you are living out the same kind of obedience that we are to have to our Heavenly Father, that is to obey His Word in all things. And then he goes on here in this to call their attention back to a commandment from the scriptures. One of the Ten Commandments. And it is the commandment that begins, Honor thy father and thy mother. Uh, What Paul is doing here in this instruction is Paul is not inventing new ideas or new commandments, but Paul is demonstrating the fulfillment of the Old Testament commandments in the law of Christ. Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, to bring it to its fullness, to bring it to its right and complete and uh, completed, perfected expression in the new covenant. And that's what's done here with this. Honor thy father and mother. And he cites this commandment. uh, And and he does so slightly differently from the language that's given us in in Exodus. Exodus 20.12 states it this way, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The importance of this commandment, the importance of this commandment is so central that it would be a determining factor in the destiny of this people of the, of the flourishing of their society, of the length of their life, and the, their experience of the good and the blessings of the land that God would give them. A, a, a people that were disobedient and rebellious to their parents would lead to destruction, to devastation, to the collapse of their own lives and their society, and a people that were obedient to their parents that were, were humble and, and followed the traditions and the, the instructions that they were given and most importantly followed the law of God as it was passed down to them would experience the outpouring of the goodness and the blessings of God upon their people. He says this is the first commandment uh, with promise, he says. Notice, honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now I notice Paul's language is slightly different here. I think what he's doing is he's taking this commandment and he's demonstrating how it is true, not just to the people that it was originally given to, the Jews who would inherit the promised land that God would give them. But it is now being given to Gentiles in in Ephesus. And it is now being applied to you today, to all people, 
everywhere. And the promise also extends to all people everywhere, not just the Jews in the promised land. But he says that it may be well with thee that thou mayest live long on the earth. He goes on to exhort likewise the fathers, not just those who are the children who are under authority, but the fathers who are in authority to exercise their position of responsibility and authority with a recognition that they do so under God and to the glory of God. He says, ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, there are many ways, perhaps, that a father could provoke their children to wrath. I think uh, one way, uh, one way is, is a lack of discipline. The father provides no instruction, no discipline, no check on the child's behavior. It will ultimately lead them to be angry, to be out of control. So that's one way, a lack of discipline. Uh, another way would be if the discipline or the reaction of the father was too too severe, overly severe, overly harsh, not proportionate to the, to the um, actions of the child itself. I think one of the, the worst things could be when, when the response of a parent to children is completely unpredictable by the children. That creates one of the worst kind of situations because the child doesn't know what's expected. Children can deal with rules. They can deal with discipline, even Strong discipline, even firm discipline. But if they don't know what's expected to them, it will lead them to despair. And as they get older, provoke them to wrath, to anger, to all kinds of difficulties. So, so Paul exhorts them here. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Uh, perhaps in that culture, in that society, the, the air was more often on the... Uh, fathers being too, too overly severe with their children and provoking them. I think today, though, I often see another, another thing that provokes children to all kinds of trouble, and that's when parents do not help their children instill any kind of meaning or purpose into their lives. We see in our world today, we see people are more depressed, more anxious, more lost than perhaps ever that we've that we've ever seen in history. And part of it is because children so many children grow up in our day and age with no sense of meaning and purpose to their life. Because culture is teaching uh, that what that, that the highest purpose of your life is to pursue what makes you happy. And the irony of that is when you only pursue happiness for its own sake, when you only pursue what you think will fulfill yourself and your own selfish desires, it leads to the most unhappy kind of existence imaginable. Because even though you seek out pleasure and you might even find pleasure, what you don't find is meaning and purpose to your life, which is more important ultimately than your temporary pleasures. And so parents need to help your children, you need to help your children instill a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. That life is more than just self-fulfillment, but it's about serving something and ultimately someone that is God, greater than ourselves, more important than ourselves. That is that you must teach them that our lives are to be lived out 
to the glory and honor of God, lived out to obedience to Christ and under Christ's authority. And that when we understand life through that lens, our life has great meaning. It has great purpose because we have been put on this earth to glorify God, to enjoy his creation, to enjoy the purpose that he's given us ultimately, and to see the kingdom of God in the world, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the other things that we need will be added to us in that. He goes on to talk about servants. He says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Now, at first look, uh, we think about the context of this, and we see that this takes place in Roman society, and they had a certain kind of servant-master relationship, which isn't exactly like anything that we have in recent history or in the world today. It had of its own uh, structure and dynamic to it. But um, I would ask you to think about, have uh, have any of you ever been a servant in your life? Are any of you a servant now? Um, Anybody? Anybody a servant? I've been a servant. In fact, I still am a servant. But I've, I've really quite very literally been a servant. I used to, uh, for many, for about eight years, I worked in food service, and we literally called ourselves servers, sometimes waiters, but, but that was one of the words we used, servers. We were servers. We served people. Um, we literally, uh, our entire existence at work was devoted and dedicating to meeting the needs, the desires, and uh, satisfying the the people, the clients, the customers that we had that were seated down to eat the meal. And we attended to it in every way imaginable to make sure that their, all their dishes were clean and sparkling, that their food was fresh and it was brought out on time and it was just to their satisfaction. We were uh, serving the people that were, were there to eat. Uh, I, I remember I worked in this for many years, so as I became more experienced, I had opportunity to train many others. And, and there was one... Um, one server that I remember, his name was Ryan, I think, and Ryan was not uh, particularly good at, at the job, but the problem wasn't so much that he didn't have the ability to do it, it was his attitude. And I was training him one day, and I was telling him you know, what we were to do. Now, this was fine dining, so we were very particular about everything. The right type of dish that you had to use to serve this, if you served a cold soup, it was in a Carafe. We had 10 pieces of silverware. We would serve the food from the left side. We would clear it from the right side. We had particular ways that we did everything, and it was all intended to make sure that the guest was always comfortable, that they were always uh, attended to, that their water glass was always full, that if they had a need, that it was being met. And so we would approach the table. We didn't say, hey, hey, guys, how's it going? We had to say, sir, ma'am, what can I get you? And we had certain ways that we were to speak and act. And I was describing this to him, what he was to do. When the table comes in and they sit down, go to the table and say, welcome, good evening. Um, and, and, uh, and And at some point he said, I don't like this. I don't like this. I feel like a servant. And I don't remember what I said. I was so taken aback. But I was thinking, 
look, newsflash, you are a servant. That is the whole reason you're here is to serve. And we might view that in our day and age as that that's a, that's a shameful thing or that's a denigrating thing. But the reality is that we are all in various aspects of our life in positions where we are serving others. Even if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you're one of the most powerful people in the world, you are still ultimately at the service of others. You've got to serve your shareholders or your corporate board. If you're a mid-level manager in a business, you're serving not only those in positions of authority over you, but a lot of what you do is to serve the employees that work for you and make sure that their needs are taken care of and they're met. So we are all, we are all, everyone is under authority and many of us are in authority at some point in some position of our lives and often it is both at the same time. And so I think we can apply these things to our lives today, what he's saying here. It's just as relevant as it was back then even though the dynamic is different. The principles still apply, and we can extend them to our lives today. Notice what he says. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. So we see from this that as you serve in the relationships in your life, whether it's within your family, whether it's in your employment, it's in the church, as you're called to submit to the leaders of your church, as you're called to submit yourselves to one another and you serve, as you serve, you can do so to Christ and not to men. Ultimately, you are serving Christ. With goodwill, not with eye service, he says, as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That in serving in having the heart of a servant and the actions of a servant and the humility and obedience, you can, from your heart, be serving and doing that which is pleasing in the sight of God. That ultimately your purpose is not, the highest aim is not to please men, though if you are a a faithful and obedient servant, you will please others much of the time. But that's not the ultimate goal. That's not the ultimate purpose. That's not your ultimate standard. It's to please men, but to please God and to do what is pleasing in his sight. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Now, here's an important principle. and You can apply this in all of your life. It's, it's an incredibly important principle. You will find in life that as you work for others, as you interact in your friendships, of your family relationships, that you will not always receive from others what is fair or what you rightly deserve. Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, but you won't always receive what's fair. You may work harder than everyone else on your team and maybe somebody else gets the promotion. Uh, you, may, you may do everything right and not be rewarded by people as you ought to be. But here's an important principle. God always sees and God will reward you for what you do. 
in his own way, in his own time. It may not be in, in what you see, it may not be in what you experience, but notice what he says, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. God will always reward uh, the, the good things that you do in service in this life, even if other people don't. So we can entrust ourselves and entrust our, the consequences of our lives to God. And we can overcome even when we might not receive fair treatment from men. Uh, there's another side to this, and it comes from a parallel passage in Colossians. Very similar instruction that Paul gives to the church at Colossae to what we're seeing here. This section is a little more concise, but I'm going to read Colossians 3, 17 to verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. covers the same subject matter as Ephesians, so I think it's, it's helpful as a comparison. Colossians 3.17 And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ." But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. And so we see that there is both the good consequences and the bad consequences received from God for our actions. And so ultimately, remember, most importantly... You serve God and not man. And so you can do what you do in singleness of heart as serving God. Verse 9, And ye masters, do the same thing unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Now, to summarize some of the lessons we, we derive from this. There's many, I think, practical lessons from this, but I want to just wrap up the message by talking about seven of these lessons. First of all, as we've already seen, everyone of us is under authority or in authority or both in our lives. So this is, this is something that, that is applicable to all of us. Second, all authority, all true authority, is ultimately derived from God, from God's creation, and from God's word. All true authority comes from God. And God has designed these human relationships and dynamics to teach us things about spiritual realities, in particular about our relationship to Him. Whether it's our relationship of Christ and His church, 
Our relationship as uh, children to our Heavenly Father, children of God, is our relationship to God as our Master and we as His servants. All of our human relationships are uh, able to teach us things about God and all true authority comes from and is derived from God. He has designed it. He's built it into His creation. And that really brings us to the third lesson, which is that no earthly authority is absolute, but all of it is subject to God. No earthly authority is absolute. If you're a a father with your children, you don't have the authority to be a tyrant and to do everything you want to your complete whim. You also are subject to God. And in and, and we ought to be careful when we think about exceptions to obeying authority, but all earthly authority is not absolute. It is subject to God. So we are required to obey God first. We are uh, we are required to obey God rather than man if man commands us to do that which is contrary to God's law. But Ultimately, all authority is subject to God and comes from him. And that brings us to a fourth lesson, which is ultimately all authority belongs to Christ. After Christ rose from the dead and he was instructing his disciples before he ascended up to the father and he sat down at the right hand of the father in heaven with all things being made subject to him. He told them, he said, all power in heaven and in earth, is given unto me. All power, he says, is given unto me. You know, I I said before that this world, some of the ideas in this world want to teach you that the highest meaning of your life would be to pursue what you feel fulfills you, what, what brings you pleasure, what brings you happiness. But Jesus has a different path, a different law that he gives. He says, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, one of the lies of the devil is to to tell you that you can be your own God. That if you, as he said in the garden, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, if you disobey what God has told you to do, your eyes will be open and you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. But we are not called... To be our own gods, but to submit ourselves to Christ and to the law of Christ. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For if any man will gain his life, he must lose it. If if anyone seeks to uh, save his own life, then he will lose it. But if anyone gives up his life to, to follow Christ and to pursue him, he will gain it. And so we see ultimately all authority belongs to Christ. We see uh, five that there are blessings in obedience. There are consequences, good and bad, for, uh, for our service to God and our obedience to him. Notice what he said about children obeying parents, that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest live long on the earth. God is not mocked, it says in another place. Whatsoever a man sows, that also shall he reap. What you plant, what you plant in your life, with your words, with your actions, 
with how you respond to others, you will in due time bear the fruit of that, those things in your life, for good or for bad. We see a sixth lesson, that is that God does not respect persons. Now see, we see in these relationships, like a servant to a master, we put a kind of uh, ranking and an, uh, an ordering on that. I mean, there is an order, but in our eyes, we, we esteem the master as, as great and the servant as lowly. Because that is, in their earthly position, in that dynamic, that is how they function. But something happens different when we see things through the lens that God gives us to see them. God does not respect our position. God does not respect our positions of uh, reputation and authority, wealth, and influence that we have here below. What God has respect to is obedience to his word from whatever station in life, whatever position you come from. God is pleased with humble obedience and loyalty to him and to his law. And God is displeased with, God will judge if you reject his law, if you rebel against his word. No matter how uh, powerful you are or great you are in the world's eyes, that has no importance to God. And so God can be just as pleased or more pleased with the lowly servant that serves God obediently and from the heart than he is with the mightiest, wealthiest emperor that the world has ever seen. God is not a respecter of persons. And so there is both an exhortation and a warning to, for example, the masters, those that are in the positions of authority, those that have the ability to command their servants. He says, remember, remember, you also have a master in heaven. You may have servants that are in a position, they have to do your will, they have to do your bidding, but don't become high-minded. Don't become lofty in your own thinking. Don't become wise and great in your own eyes. But remember that you also are a servant and you have a master in heaven who you are accountable to. And And in this sense... God, he doesn't care that you're the most powerful master. He doesn't care that you have a hundred servants waiting to do your bidding. That doesn't mean anything to to God in, in, in the way that you would think. He says, you masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is the respect of persons with him. And last, the last lesson, which kind of sums it all up together. We are serving Christ. We are serving Christ with how we live out in our human relationships. Friendships, family, employment. That, is, that, that should be a great encouragement. Because you have the opportunity to serve Christ in the way that you bring the plate of food to the table of the person you're serving. Or fill in whatever it is that you do to serve others in your work, in your home, in your family, in your dynamics, in your relationships. Whatever it is you do to serve others, you have the opportunity and the responsibility to serve Christ. You're serving Him in what you do. Do it 
not with eye service as men pleasers. See, that's, that's, saying, that's saying ultimately, don't do what you do uh, to get praise of, of men. You know, some of the greatest ways that you can serve others are ways which they won't even be able to see or to thank you for. We all like to be thanked, right? I like to be thanked. Uh, I, I like it when I, I do the dishes at home and my wife notices and she says, oh, thank you for doing the dishes. It feels good. And you should do that. We should thank each other and show gratitude and appreciation. That's a wonderful thing. But you don't have to do everything you do. You don't have to do it in order to be thanked. You don't have to do it in order to have the praise of men. At your work, you don't have to make sure that every little thing you do, that you do it to be noticed by your boss so you can get that promotion, so you can get that thanks, so you can get that recognition. The important thing is that God sees. The important thing is that you do it to the service of God. And He will make sure all those other necessary things come from that. So you can have peace about it. You can have uh, peace in your service knowing that God sees it and God will reward you, which is more important than, than anything else that we would receive from the praise of men. So do it, it says, in singleness of heart. And you know, that's, a, that's also a very comforting and encouraging thing and a peaceful thing because the, the hardest thing in the world One of the hardest things in the world is to try to serve two masters. One of the hardest things in the world is to have our attention and our loyalty and our devotion divided between different things. And I have good news. You don't have to do that. You can have your entire heart devoted, single-minded, and your whole life directed towards one thing, and that is to serve Christ. And He will give you the means, He will give you the ability for all those other things to flow from that. It won't make you a bad husband, it won't make you a bad wife, it won't make you a bad child, parent, servant, master, but in fact, it will enable you to fulfill that in the best way that you can because you're doing it for Christ, which is most important. So let us serve Christ. Let us do so with humbleness of heart. Let us do so with an attitude of obedience and service in singleness of heart, serving and pleasing God rather than man. Let us pray. Our dear God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us as we apply it in our lives. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that our Lord Jesus Christ, that he came and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And he did so for our salvation, for our deliverance. And Lord, now in the light of that great gift and work that he has done for us, let us serve Christ loyally and faithfully in our lives and how we serve one another in our relationships. God, we thank you for these human relationships. We thank you for the joy that we have to, to be in part of communities and families and friendships. God, you have said it's not good for man to be alone, but you have created us to live and dwell in, in a situation of community and relationship. And God, may those relationships be greatly renewed and revived by the power of the, of the gospel working through us. 
God, help us to be faithful and obedient to Christ in all this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.